0: Subject to eligibility requirements, rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park.
1: Committed is a production of iHeartRadio. A quick warning
4: before we get started. This episode contains triggering content concerning sexual abuse. Bear with me here for a minute because it is definitely a story worth listening to. This is a story about one woman finding strength and love after experiencing a crushing sexual trauma as a child. But even though this story starts in the darkness, it's more about finding a way to believe you deserve to live in the light and finding the person who helps you believe that. Shannon Dingle is a survivor. As a child, she was assaulted and raped repeatedly by members of her family. This is Shannon.
5: My childhood involved a lot of rape. My childhood involved a lot of physical abuse. My childhood involved a lot of emotional and spiritual abuse. I attempted suicide at age 11 after rapes became very frequent, I became pregnant at age 12 and ultimately miscarried. So I just thought that if I could be better, then maybe I could be good enough to be loved in all of the ways I wanted to be loved. And at various points, I became fairly confident that wasn't going to happen.
4: But it did happen. And it happened in a wonderful way. Today, Shannon is happily married, and she's a mom of six kids. Last week, I talked to Shannon and her husband Lee about the strength and bravery it takes to rebuild your life and embrace love, marriage, and motherhood after a childhood of abuse and assault. We got to talk about what it takes to be a partner who learns how to make that survivor feel safe. And how to build a family that looks nothing like the family you grew up with. I'm Joe Piazza. This is Committed. The first part of this show is Shannon's story. And I'm going to let her tell most of it in her own words. She hasn't always been able to tell her story like this. It's taken a long time to get to the point where she can be completely honest about the horrific things that happened to her as a child.
5: I was the youngest in a family of five. I have an older sister and an older brother. And two parents who were heavily involved in our community through both profession. My dad was a major in the sheriff's department, and so the concern was, okay, how can we look good? My dad was a scout master for the Boy Scouts for thirty plus years, and From the outside, my parents were so highly respected, and everyone thought that they were almost saint-like at times. I was precocious, which I think saved me in a lot of ways, because I was bright enough to know from a young age, okay, you're not supposed to be raped at age four. I knew in my gut that certain things were just not right. I learned to notice how many drinks each person in my family had had to know whether or not we were reaching that level at which it might be a danger zone. My childhood involved a lot of rape. My childhood involved a lot of physical abuse. My childhood involved a lot of emotional and spiritual abuse. I thought maybe if I can just get higher grades or be in more clubs or in more leadership positions, then i will finally be enough so that they won't rape me in hindsight i my heart breaks for myself at that age but also knowing that there are other kids out there today who are having to rationalize through abuse and not have anyone guiding them and explaining this isn't your fault, and explaining they made these choices, not you, and explaining that there is nothing that any of us need to do to be worthy of not being raped. So I just thought that if I could be better, then maybe I could be good enough to be loved in all of the ways I wanted to be loved. And at various points, I became fairly confident that wasn't going to happen. I attempted suicide at age 11 after rapes became very frequent.
4: Shannon was about to start the seventh grade when she realized that her period was late. Then she started to throw up. The only reason she thought she might be pregnant is that she'd seen an episode of the television show Full House where Aunt Becky was sick when she was pregnant with twins. Shannon walked a mile and a half to the drugstore and lied to the clerk. She told him she needed to buy a pregnancy test for her mom. It was positive. She was six weeks pregnant and that pregnancy was a result of both rape and incest. But at 12 years old, all she was thinking was that maybe this unwanted pregnancy would help people see she was actually being abused.
5: In that moment, I actually saw a bit of hope because I thought, okay, well, I'm pregnant. People are going to know this isn't something my family will be able to hide. And so I didn't tell them because I wanted to make sure I was far enough in the pregnancy that it couldn't be hidden easily before they knew anything. And I thought, okay, this is where maybe, maybe something's going to change. Something's going to have to change, right? Because 12-year-olds aren't supposed to be pregnant. I still thought at that time that me being pregnant at 12 meant that everyone would be sure that I was a slut. At that point, I was resigned to that. I was fine with that. Well, not fine with that. I had accepted it. Then when I miscarried and that plan fell through, that no one was going to find out these things, even the things I didn't want them to know. No one was going to see this proof that I thought was going to be the one thing that might convince people to not only believe me, but do something. Because I had tried to tell people that my home was not safe, but my father was high ranking in the sheriff's department. And so... Everyone brushed things off and assumed that my parents were doing the right thing, even when they weren't. I resolved when I was 13 that I was just going to get through. And I expected that it would be a long shot for me to get through to move out and go to college. I was pretty confident that I wasn't going to survive. And so I just did the next thing every time a new man came or every time I had a moment where I wasn't being raped or any time I had a test the next day because I was still doing the typical 13-year-old things and 14-year-old things.
4: Shannon's survival strategy was mostly about keeping up appearances and controlling the things that she could control. And from the outside, that looked like high achievement, good grades, extracurriculars.
5: I didn't want to know my story. I didn't want to own my story. I didn't want to be impacted by the trauma of my childhood. And I tried really hard to pretend that nothing affected me in hopes that maybe if I could pretend well enough, it might be true or close to true. And I could just have a typical life, whatever that looked like, and I became rather fatalistic that either I'm just going to die, and then it will be over, or I just have to get through however many more years I have left before I go to college.
4: Shannon kept telling herself she just had to make it through high school. If she could make it through high school, then she'd get to move out of her house and go away to college. And once in college, she thought maybe she could have something that looked like a normal life. After graduation, she went off to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. At school, she got the chance to be a different person. And by the time she met Lee, Shannon was determined that she would have a normal college experience. Maybe even a normal boyfriend. The two of them met on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. She went to UNC, and he went to North Carolina State, but they were both in Louisiana for a Lutheran campus ministry conference. They both thought they were super cool and wild for being dead on Bourbon Street in the first place.
6: Uh, I noticed her first, before she noticed me.
5: My friend Catherine had noticed Lee first, and so she totally had dibs. And I kept trying to... Get them in the same place because she had said one of the boys from state was cute and the other two were clearly not the ones who were cute. So I just, I figured, okay, well, I can be this matchmaker. And even when Lee asked me to go on a walk and do some shopping in the French Quarter one day, she immediately. I'm like, she should come with us. And I invited her to come. At about this point, Lee is worried that I don't feel safe with him since I'm really trying hard to get someone else with us. But I was oblivious until about halfway through this first date of ours that it was even a date. He put his arm around me and I was like, oh, oh, I think maybe he's into me. So it was kind of an accidental first date, which maybe was good because I didn't I didn't have any guards up because he was this guy who I was setting up with my friend Catherine.
6: I just knew that I wanted to talk with Shannon. So if there was someone else there, that was fine with me. I just wanted to talk with Shannon.
5: As cheesy as it sounds, we were together on New Year's Eve. And when the ball dropped, we decided to make a resolution that we would try to make things work when we got back up to school.
4: Shannon was guarded at first. She desperately wanted this normal college experience that included dating a great guy like Lee, but everything that had happened to her in the past made her nervous about a romantic and sexual relationship.
5: I was willing to give things a try when we got back to school. I was a pretty mean girlfriend in terms of making him prove to me that he really was trustworthy and really was in it for me, and so... I probably could count on one hand maybe two the number of times that I drove to his school. I always made him come to me so we would just hang out together and there was no expectation of anything physical. In hindsight I go, "Wow, that like that's why things were able to work out because I am usually guarded given my past and I'm usually really, really apprehensive of what people's motives are and whether or not this is going to work out and what expectations are. But I was okay with him showing up. And so he kept showing up and I kept letting him. By the end of that first semester that we were together, so by the end of our that school year, we were pretty committed to each other and to a future that involved each other. In terms of when we knew this was probably a forever sort of thing. It was shockingly fast, especially given how I do not trust easily.
4: Being with Lee felt like a relief for Shannon for so many reasons. One of them is that she finally felt safe.
5: I was just really relieved to be able to live life without Thinking about safety all the time, without thinking about whether or not my parents were going to be upset that I told some story, uh, without thinking about whether or not I was going to be raped that night at home. For a long time, I just wanted to play the college girl who everything was fine with, and so would pretend that I had had an okay childhood. I never pretended that everything was great. But I am the queen of
4: the understatement. She wanted to tell Lee about her past, about the trauma and the abuse, but she wasn't ready to tell him all of it. At the time, she wasn't honest about all of it with anyone, not even herself.
5: I would say things like, yeah, my childhood was rough, but... and. Saying your childhood was rough, but doesn't exactly clue people into the fact that you were pregnant at 12 or trafficked for sex or abused pretty much from your earliest memory. That's not what people assume when you just say, yeah, things were rough.
6: I was super naive. I didn't really know that rough childhood exists. I had a completely normal childhood, very drama-free. I had in my head, you know, kind of like, Why do counselors and high school counselors and school counselors, why do they even exist? Seems like such an easy job.
5: Safety was something he took for granted. For me, any environment, I was looking for safety and evaluating everything for safety because my assumption is, okay, wherever we are, whatever's going on, especially in my childhood home, is not going to be safe.
6: So I was really naive in all this. And you know, so what Shannon's telling me, I'm just kind of like, okay, it was rough. Uh, I, I, I don't even think I could have imagined what actually happened. So I think that made it easier. And she, you know, in all this, and her sickness says she didn't want to go home. And I was like, okay, great. I get to spend more time with you. This is really easy. I just have to go get a movie from Blockbuster and some food, and then we can just hang out.
5: I knew by the time I was ready to start sharing pieces of my story that, I felt safe in doing so. He had not grown up with abuse. And so the idea that I might have all of these different preconceived notions about whether or not people could be trusted, whether or not men could be trusted, whether or not I felt comfortable being touched, whether or not. I was sure about having kids because maybe I was going to be like my family had been and I didn't want to put another child through this. All of these things that my brain was constantly on high alert and super loud, as if there were a million conversations going on all the time. Analyzing him, analyzing my environment, analyzing my abilities, analyzing how... I was reacting to things, and was I reacting to things because this had happened to me as a child? And I didn't know at that time that everybody's brains weren't that loud.
4: One night, the two of them were laying on a blanket in the quad at NC State, just chatting about life. It was starting to get dark.
5: So I didn't have to be looking him in the eye as I told him about things. It's easier for me to talk about traumatic stuff when I don't have to see someone's reactions. It's almost painful for me to see empathy from someone else because I feel often like I have caused that pain for them, which they're feeling with me. I told him not very many details, just that, I had been hurt in a lot of ways as a child by people who were supposed to keep me safe. I told him about a certain number of rapes that I felt like was representative enough of the whole that he had enough pieces. I told him about some of the situations, and he knew more than anyone else in my life did. But... There was so much. I mean, my, I, I am, I'm able to recognize now in a way that I couldn't then that the reason why talking about trauma felt really overwhelming was because I endured and survived extreme chronic lasting trauma. It was important for me to see how he responded I was really concerned with whether or not he was going to respond with kindness at all. I had been told by abusers that I was not going to be believed by anyone, that everyone would know that I had wanted it or that this defined me or that I was a slut or a whore.
6: It didn't change Shannon at all in my eyes. She was still Shannon. She was still this girl that I was falling in love with. And I was able to to be with her.
5: He just held me while I cried. And he was concerned about how I was feeling after having shared that. He was concerned about what he needed to do. He even asked, is it okay if
6: I hug you? Is it okay if I do this? Yeah, Shannon, she... She didn't seem broken. She didn't appear as if anything was wrong. From my point of view, everything looked fine.
5: I didn't realize how much had been wrong because while now I can talk about my story and have anyone go, oh my gosh, that was hell that you lived through as a child. For me, it was just my normal. And yes, my normal was awful. But I didn't know that... It was anything other than me just doing the next thing and surviving. I didn't think that living through my childhood was anything remarkable. I just knew that I got through something and then immediately went, okay, well, what next? What am I going to do next? What do I need to do next? Even if it was something positive, okay, I've achieved that. I'm not even going to stop to celebrate. What can I achieve next to show that I am worth love, that I'm worth belonging, that I'm worth the protection that I should have had inherently all along?
6: Like Shannon said, she was achieving and excelling at everything she set her mind to. She was doing really great in school. She was doing great things in the community and with extracurricular activities. So from my point of view, back then, she didn't really seem like anyone that needed help or support. We were just two college students dating and having fun. Those
5: things that happened to me as a kid might have been my normal, but they should never be anyone's normal.
4: It's time for a quick break. We'll be right back.
1: Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sort. High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone. Goes wherever you go. I win three spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards. Over twelve hundred games. I want again. Platoon, present cell phone. High Five, High Five Casino, Casino. Win at High Five Casino. .com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void are prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High
2: Five Casino.
1: There's a lot happening these days
4: When Shannon was describing her abuse to me, she told me that she thought no one would ever love her the way she wanted to be loved.
5: I wanted to be seen and known. I think all of us do. I wanted for who I was to matter to someone.
4: Lee was that someone. And by the end of college, they both knew that. Shannon was set to graduate before Lee with plans to work for Teach for America in South Texas.
5: He made what I thought was a joke, that he was going to put a ring on my finger before I moved across the country, and it was not.
4: Now at this point, Lee knew that Shannon had been abused as a child, but he didn't know the extent of it or who she'd been abused by. Shannon was also still really close with her family, She still desperately wanted their love and approval, which isn't at all uncommon for someone who's been abused as a child.
5: I was still at that time in communication with my family and wanted them to accept me and wanted to maybe still earn that love, affection, protection that I hadn't gotten. It was important to me. Living in and being raised in the American South, for Lee to ask my dad's permission. So I called Lee and said, Hey, there are good fares for you to maybe fly down and talk to my parents, and was totally not being slick about it, but felt like maybe I was. I don't know. I did not know at the time, but when I called Lee, he was sitting on my parents' couch and petting my dog and had already flown down.
6: In my mind, I knew that bad things had happened. I don't think I understood the depth that they had happened. And I believed they weren't happening anymore, that she was safe now. And I knew that I really loved this girl and I wanted to marry her. And she says I have to talk to her dad. So, all right, I'll fly down and talk to her dad.
5: If Lee had known the entire story, then I don't think he would have been able to interact with my family like he did over the years.
4: But at the time, Lee didn't know the extent of the abuse. He wouldn't know it until much later in their marriage. All he knew is that he had her dad's permission, and he was ready to propose. And so Lee planned this elaborate and beautiful scavenger hunt through various places on Shannon's college campus that were meaningful to them.
5: And at that point, I knew, okay, there's going to be a ring at the end of this. The scavenger hunt ultimately led to the bench at the Davy Poplar Tree at UNC, which anyone who went to the University of North Carolina knows is a landmark for romance. And we had actually said, I love you for the very first time on that bench.
6: I was nervous. I was very nervous about all of this. I don't know why. But I had to go ask some people to move and get off the bench because I really needed to propose to my girlfriend now, and so I needed the bench. And, of course, they immediately got up and allowed me to use the bench.
5: When I got to the bench, he had a bit of a speech prepared. He got down on one knee and before asking me he put the ring on my finger i still tease him about that still um i'm like yeah no usually you've got to get a yes before you're putting the ring on, on the girl's finger that's how it works but since it was a very public place on campus there was a tour group going by of high school students who were considering coming to the college, there was a large group of sorority girls who were heading to their sorority house. So we had quite the audience. He was brave. And so then when it was clear that I had said yes, after he had put the ring on my finger, we had a lot of cheers.
4: By the time Lee proposed to her, Shannon finally felt worthy of love.
5: I thought I deserved it this fairy tale sort of thing was happening for me. Our relationship is is one of those things that it is beautiful and almost mysterious in sort of a spiritual faith sort of way that we get each other, we love each other, we show up for each other. I know that he is going to accept me. I know that... Whatever hard thing happens, we're going to work through it. And we're with each other. We are in it to see both of us flourish. By the time he proposed, it still felt disorienting. I mean, any good thing, even now, sometimes feels disorienting to me. But it also felt... Normal within the context of my relationship with him. In so many ways, the love that Lee has shown me has been transformative in helping me understand what love is, in helping me understand who I am, in making it clear that love is based in a... Desire to know someone and connect with them for all that they are. I didn't know what it was like to be vulnerable with someone and be met with the care that he provided then, has provided since. And I had learned that I didn't have to be waiting for the moment in which... He was going to show me something different. I didn't have to be waiting for the horror movie moment when something was going to jump out, which is what I had learned to do in life. And so the picture-perfect sort of engagement by then, I still was not at all convinced that I deserved it, but I knew that Lee was convinced that I deserved it. And that was enough for me.
4: Shannon and Lee had a two-year-long engagement, so they had plenty of time to plan the perfect wedding. Shannon really wanted to give her parents the kind of picture-perfect Southern wedding that she thought they wanted. She was still so desperate to please them. Lee, on the other hand, wanted a carnival. And he wanted to call it Dinglefest. But Shannon didn't think he was serious, and so they went along with Shannon's idea first. But Shannon had recently stopped drinking. She had a complicated relationship with alcohol, and she'd seen it lead to so many traumatic things in her childhood. That's when she told her parents she didn't want a bar at her wedding.
5: Which I didn't want for myself, but I also didn't want because family members had been out of control drunk at my brother's wedding several years prior, and I didn't want to have to be dealing with that on my wedding day. My parents felt like not having alcohol at our wedding would make them look cheap to all of their friends. I was given an ultimatum. My family said, okay, if you don't want to have alcohol at the wedding, then you can't have it here and we're gonna cancel everything. Or you can just go ahead, this isn't a big deal, and have alcohol at the wedding and we can keep everything as we've already planned it. We canceled everything. Uh, Well, actually, my mother canceled everything After that happened, we obviously kind of had to regroup. I posed to Lee expecting that he was going to be like, no, this was a joke. I said, so how serious were you about this whole carnival thing for a wedding reception?
6: I was serious the whole time.
5: (laughs) When my mom made the choice that she did to cancel all of our original wedding plans— Lee and I both realized, wait a second, this really isn't about the wedding. This is about the marriage. This is about our relationship. So let's just have fun on this one day thing, but it's not really about that. So what do we want to do? And that was how this party that was not a typical wedding reception at all came to be we had what we ended up dubbing Dingle Fest. We had a traditional church wedding in my little town in Texas. And then at a community center, we had a climbing wall and a moon jump and a dunk tank that the groomsmen took turns in and that at one point I ultimately ended up in by the end of the the day. And a jousting ring. And inside there were... Um, Pool tables and foosball tables and video game consoles. And am I leaving anything off, Lee? Yes.
6: um, There was the bungee run that uh, the groomsmen um, were very competitive at.
5: We also did the jousting ring. And Lee realized fairly early on that as soon as I fell down with my dress, I couldn't stand back up. And so he would just bounce things until I fell down. Yeah, I didn't really want a wedding cake at all. He said we needed to have a wedding cake. So we did have a wedding cake, but what I wanted was dippin' dots, you know, the little circular things that are has been called since the eighties at least, the ice cream of the future. Dip
6: and dots rock. dots. Ice cream of the future. I don't know where she found them. Somehow she found Dippin' Dots, and we even had leftover Dippin' Dots that we, through great lengths, uh, tried to care for them after the wedding on our way to our honeymoon. Eventually we failed, and it just turned into one giant dot.
4: Shannon's family did end up coming to the wedding.
5: My family, largely because appearances are and were very important. They came to the wedding because they realized it would look bad if they didn't. And they pretended everything was fine. My dad walked me down the aisle. And there are a lot of things that in hindsight are hard pictures to look at or are hard to make sense of.
4: Let's take a quick break here. When we get back, we'll find out how Shannon and Lee started a family that they thought would include just them and a couple of kids and how they ended up becoming the parents of
0: six. The following is a high-five moment from HighFiveCasino.com.
1: I won!
0: Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season.
4: For a long time, Shannon wasn't even sure if she wanted kids. Growing up the way she had was enough to make her think that she might not be the kind of parent that she wanted to be. But meeting Lee and falling in love with him changed that.
5: Part of what made me trust and fall so hard in love with Lee was seeing how beautifully he interacts with kids. We were involved with different philanthropies that supported the North Carolina Children's Hospital, and we did various church activities that involved kids. And he has a younger sister, and I watched how he doted on her. She was in middle school while we were in college. And so seeing that he was such a different man made me soften to the idea of having kids with him. And so, by the time we got engaged, and definitely by the time we got married, we knew that kids were going to be in our future. We knew that adoption was probably going to be part of our story because I knew so well that some kids are not able to grow up safely in their first families.
4: Early on, they talked about how they wanted kids, probably two,
6: three at the most. Six wasn't the plan. (laughs) (laughs) We failed at that, but...
5: uh. Within a month, I was pregnant with our first. That timeline was not initially what we thought. We didn't expect to get pregnant before our first anniversary.
4: Shannon became pregnant with their second child, Robbie, a couple years later. Then, when Robbie was almost three, a friend reached out to Lee and Shannon about a little girl in Taiwan who needed to be adopted. She was only three months old, but they were having a hard time placing her because of health problems and disabilities.
5: We were not planning on adopting a child with physical disabilities. We were open to a lot of other things, but I have rheumatoid arthritis, and I also have some lasting physical injuries to some of my joints from childhood abuse. So we felt like a child who would require a lot of physical support probably wasn't going to be the best choice for us. But we also wanted to seem like we were being good Christian people, and I still had enough of that trying to look like the perfect family in me at that time, that we told this friend of ours who reached out to us that we would pray about it and would get back to her.
6: I believed that we should get some more information, but I'm certain I'm going to find out that this is a stupid plan and this is a bad idea. But I should probably not just say no without knowing more. So we asked for some more information about Zoe.
5: Over the course of just a few days, our hearts and minds and spirits shifted from why would we do this to why wouldn't we? We knew that she and every other child deserve the love and care of adults who are just absolutely wild about them. And so we figured, okay, let's do this. She joined our family, and we loved raising Zoe.
4: It was only 15 months later that patients, Philip, and Patricia, a sibling group of three from Uganda, came into their lives. They'd known they wanted to adopt again after Zoe, but they thought it would be just one more child.
5: Once again, a different friend reached out and said, hey, I know you guys are open to... HIV positive adoption, which had been something we had been very open about sharing as just a way of advocating for kids who have a chronic condition that freaks people out, but really isn't a big deal anymore. She said, There's this sibling group of three, and one of them is HIV positive. Are you guys open to siblings? And would you guys be willing to consider adopting from a different country than you had planned? We met them through their pictures. We dug in to make sure that they needed a family. We had private investigations done in their country to make sure that international adoption was the best choice for them and that they didn't have options of being with extended family members, for example. So to keep them together, we ended up changing what our plan was of adopting one more child and instead adopted three at once because they're biological siblings. I don't want to sound flippant, but we love kids. And so things just kind of happened. I think maybe this is where my having an unconventional to put it mildly childhood comes into play because i don't know that i have a framework for what a typical family is supposed to be i didn't grow up in one we certainly don't have one now i feel like we decided fairly quickly to adopt patients philip and patricia even though we had only adopted zoe about 8 months prior I read all the parenting books when I was pregnant with Josie because I was convinced that since I hadn't learned how to be a good parent growing up, I could learn from books. That's how I had learned in the past. So I tried to learn from books and found out that every parenting book contradicts the other parenting books and nobody really knows what they're talking about. And now it's kind of delightful to be like, yeah, we don't fit any of the parenting books. So even the people who are convinced that they have it right— Yeah, your thing doesn't really fit for us because we are sort of oddballs anyway.
4: It was having her own children and raising her family that helped Shannon to confront the full impact of the trauma she went through as a child.
5: I was fairly successful at acting like everything was fine as I was drowning inside Until just the past 5, 10 years, it's amazing what parenting does to you, especially in my case, because I had parents who were not at all like what Lee and I aim to be as parents for our kids. And as our kids were born or joined our family by adoption, we were able to reflect on our own childhood experiences in certain ways. What do we want to do that's similar to our parents? What do we want to do that's different? My initial reaction, which has worked actually fairly well for us, was let me think of what my parents would have done and let me not do that. And that has worked for us a lot in parenting, but being able to see my kids at certain ages has let me realize and has chipped away at this pretend life that I tried to convince other people of. I see my kid at seven and I know that I was experiencing things that I would never want her to be experiencing at seven. I have the instinct to protect my child against a kid on the playground who said something mean. And I know that way worse happened to me. And I had family members who either were doing the way worse thing or were protecting the person who was doing it. And so as a kid, I wanted someone to want to help me. I wanted someone to love me by showing up, by seeing me, and by caring about what happened to me. It's funny to say that out loud because I consider that to be such the absolute basic Goals I have as a mom, of course I see my kids. Of course I want to be with them. Of course I love them and want to show up for them. And those are things that come naturally to me as a mom because I love my kids.
4: Shannon has a message for other adults and children who've been the victims of abuse and trauma.
5: Lee taught me a great deal about trust, but Lee is not meant to be my sole source of redemption or of healing or any of that. That would be putting way too much on him, and that's not something that any human's capable of. I have therapists I trust. I have doctors I trust. I have a pastor I trust. It's this process of learning to discern who you can trust through little moments where people keep showing up. Your abuse and the the pain that you experience does not define you. You are worthy of love and belonging. And anyone who treats you like you aren't is wrong. You are not what's wrong in that environment, but they are
1: wrong.
4: This episode was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza, with special thanks to Shannon and Lee Dingle. It was produced and edited by Ramsey Yunt, with mixing by Tristan McNeil. The executive producers are Joe Piazza, Tyler Klang, and Julie Douglas. Theme song and music by Tristan McNeil. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at 404-996-1173. That's 404-996-1173. Or send us an email at Joe at committedpodcast dot com. That's J-O at Committed dot com. You can grab a copy of Joe's book, How to Be Married, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio and produced in our studios located in Atlanta, Georgia. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your
0: favorite shows.
1: High Five Casino